Good morning, everybody. Woohoo! So nice to see all of you guys. I get to see more new faces every week, and I'm so excited about that. So for all of you guys who are just now returning back, thank you guys for coming back. You've made my heart happy. I know you make Pastor Mark's happy, heart happy, and we are just excited to see you right now. Um, I was told last time that I preached uh, by Pastor Mark that I need to smile more. So if I don't do any more, you saw it, right? You saw it. We're good. Okay, so um, with that being said, one of the things we're doing here at Heights is that we are going through the Psalms. We're going through the Bible in five years, and uh, we are on year four right now. We are, my goodness, we are running to the finish line. It's just so awesome. Um, and so where we're at right now is we're in the book of Psalms. And I want to encourage you to be on this journey with us. What we do is we read six days a week together as a congregation. And then our sermons are taken from the, uh, our sermons are taken from the readings that we've had. And I would encourage you that if you're reading what you really need to do, if you're new here, please go to the information desk, get a bookmark, because the way we're doing Psalms, we're not reading like from Psalm 1 to 150. We've got them in categories to better understand them, and you're going to be a little lost thinking, well, we did this last week, and so we really would encourage you, go grab one of those bookmarks so you can keep up with us as to what we're doing. But we're really excited because the Psalms are amazing, are they not? It's been so awesome so far being in the Psalms, and I don't think that we are going to find that today will be an exception to that rule. Um, We are starting Psalms of David. David wrote, according to the scripture, 73 psalms are attributed to David. That's a lot of psalms. For the next five, which means basically every week we're doing psalms, almost every week we do psalms in this whole time, there'll be a psalm of David probably thrown in there at some point. Um, But specifically for the next five weeks, we will be only doing Psalms of David. And this particular week, we did Psalms of David's life. Uh, There are 13 Psalms that have extra information at the very beginning of that Psalm, uh, talking about when they were constructed or when they were inspired. We read six of those this past week. There were Psalm 59, 52, 54, 57, 142, and 3. Okay, One of the things that maybe you didn't know, and one of the things that when we constructed the readings, or when I constructed the readings of this, is that these psalms are actually in chronological order. So if you read during this week, then if you, if you know the story of David and David's life, you probably were walking right along going like, yeah, that kind of happened during this time. That was done intentionally to give you an idea of what happens chronologically. Psalm 59 was constructed, and this is a, the heading for it. It says, when Saul had sent men to watch David's house. That's found in 1 Samuel 19. Psalm 52, when Doeg the Edomite had gone to Saul and told him David has gone to the house of Ahimelech. That's found in 1 Samuel chapters 21 and 22. We read of that account. Psalm 54, when the Ziphites had gone to Saul and said, is not David hiding among us? That actually happened twice. It happened once in in 1 Samuel 23 and then again in 1 Samuel 26. Um, Psalm 57, when he had fled from Saul into the cave, and this happened in 1 Samuel 24, and he would remain in that area through 1 Samuel 26. And again, in Psalm 
142 when he was in the cave, and that would be that same type of reference from 1 Samuel 24 to 26. And then Psalm 3 would happen later in life uh, when his son Absalom uh, was trying to take over the throne. And it said when he fled from his son Absalom, that would happen in 2 Samuel chapters 15 through 18. So these psalms that you read this week were about the life of David. And if you were astute, you might have recognized, yeah, I remember when all this happened. And you're kind of walking this chronological uh, journey, if you will. The second things that you should notice about the psalms that were chosen here, of the 13 of them that have uh, extra information, that six that were chosen for this week for our reading, all six of them were written while David is on the run from either Saul or Absalom. Every single one of them is when he's kind of, I don't want to say in exile, but somebody's in hot pursuit of him, right? He is, he is running for his life. And as a result of that, the other thing that you should have noticed as, as this week went on is that these psalms were fairly short, right? The longest psalm was, well, the longest psalm for the week that we read was only 17 verses long. Most of them were much shorter than that. The total number of verses you read this week were only 59 verses. Do you guys realize that? If you guys did the reading this week, how many of you did the reading this week? Raise your hand. Awesome. Only had to do 59 verses. You probably felt a little cheated, right? Like, there are some psalms in the Psalter. Psalter is just, you know, when you're talking about the book of Psalms by itself, it's called the Psalter. Um, The book of Psalms, there are some psalms in the Psalter that are longer readings than all of our readings this week. So some of you might have said, that's it? That's, that's all I got to read? It's a good way to get started, right? Because if you haven't been re- reading the Bible very much, you wanted to get in daily basis, like, that was pretty painless, you know? But think about it. If you're on the run, how much time do you have to, con- to compose songs, right? And, and why in the world would David compose songs? I think we, we need to answer that question before we jump into one of these psalms real quick. Why would David be composing psalms on the run? That's kind of a strange thing to do, don't you guys think? How many of you are like, I'm running from Saul. Let's sing a song. Right? How many of you guys are thinking that? Like, I'm running for my life. I want to sing a song right now. I want to construct a song. Right? What do you do when you're stressed out, when life is hitting you hard? Everybody has a go-to something, right? Just raise your hand real quick. Tell me something you do when you're stressed out. What do you like to do? What do you do that might seem unusual to everybody else? Somebody, come on, anybody. Huh? You read the Psalms, okay. So you go ahead and read the Psalms. What else do you do? Sam, eat ice cream. How many of you are ice cream eaters when you're stressed, okay? What else do you do? What else do you do? I pray, okay? That's a great thing to do. What else do you do? Hopefully we pray. You sing in the shower. A lot of singing going on. All of a sudden, David's like, I get David, right? <laughs> sing, construct songs, I get that. I, when I get stressed out, Um, obviously prayer is a part of of my life during that time, but I I get up and start doing things. I I like to be active. Like if I'm really upset about something, I'm overwhelmed with something. This is part, part of the reason why my wife Shannon, sometimes if I get mad, I'll start cleaning the house. 
And then if she's still mad at me or, or she's like, I could apologize right now, but he's cleaning the house, so maybe I'll wait till later, right? <laughs> he's, he's going at a great pace right now. It'd be really great if we get more of the house cleaned. He's a little stressed right now over this thing, and man, but the house is looking good, Right? What do you guys do? All of us have certain things we kind of run to, right? Some of them might be constructive. Some might be destructive. Some things might be uh, glorifying to God or not. But what David did that might seem unusual is that he thought of songs for God. And, and it's easy to see why, because if we remember, if we remember the story that we studied last year when we, when we went through the histories, David was anointed as a king to succeed um, Saul, when Saul had been rejected by God because he wouldn't obey him. And at that time, God sent an injurious or an evil spirit to kind of plague Saul because of his disobedience. And music was something that would cause that injurious or evil spirit to subside. And so they said, we need to look in the kingdom for somebody who plays to help our king during these fits of rage that seemed to overcome him. And they found David, who happened to be also the anointed of God, who was waiting to be the successor for Saul. And he was playing in the service of Saul. So music was always a part of David's life, always. Something he had always done, something he was known for, something he was brought in even to soothe Saul from this injurious spirit. So singing songs to God is second nature to him. Composing songs to God is second nature to him. We have 73 of them in Psalms. They're his, that's nearly half. And in every circumstance of life, so just like you and me might do something, we might go gardening, we might go driving, we might, whatever it is that you do when you're stressed and you've got to pray to God, how am I going to do this? In my case, it's cleaning and renovating or whatever, right? Now I've given Barbara and Mark an idea, like, we've got to get him mad now. Get his, we, we want his office clean. We just get him mad, and then he'll start working. So whatever that is for David... It was thinking about God and singing to God in all circumstances, okay? So it may seem unusual, and, and the more we verbalize what we do, which a lot of songs came out of our mouth, right? The more we realize David's a lot like us. He really is. All right, and so the interesting thing about these psalms, other than the fact that they're very, very short, right, um, is that they all have three sections to them. Okay, you can go back and, and kind of look. In general, what you see is, number one, they have a, a plea or a complaint to God concerning the circumstances that David's in right now, right? Here's what's going on, God. I'm either pleading to you concerning my circumstances or I'm complaining to you about my circumstances. These are the things that, that David is, is mentioning to God. In the second section, we see this, this turn, that, that there's a hope that God will answer this prayer according to his righteousness, right? Hear my plea, God. 
according to your righteousness. Sometimes he's wishing punishment on people. Sometimes he's wishing that he will be vindicated. Sometimes he's wishing for his own deliverance. But in all of these cases, what we're seeing is that there is a plea and a hope that God's going to answer his prayer according to God's righteousness, right? And then number three is that as he closes each of these psalms, we see that there's a trust that David has that God will see him through this time, and because of this confidence, he will praise him. So what we see in every one of these psalms is written quickly. What's on his brain? I want to be delivered. (laughs) There are people chasing me down who want to kill me. God, deliver me from this according to your righteousness. He's God's anointed. He's trusting God to be his deliverer during this time. It's interesting to note that as it pertains to Saul especially, he never lifts his hand against Saul because he sees Saul as God's anointed until God takes him out. It's, it's God's job to take him out, not David's. And so when we read these complaints, he's to- totally entrusting himself to God because he knows he's also God's anointed. And so whatever happens to Saul, if he treats God's anointed in some wrong fashion, the same could be very easily done to him. And so he chooses to treat God's anointed with respect, saying God will deal with him. I'm just running. I'm just running and trusting God will deliver me from someone who sees me as an enemy. And we're going to look at one of those psalms today. So if you have your Bibles with you, turn to Psalm 52. Psalm 52. And this is the one where Daog the Edomite had gone to Saul and told him David has gone to the house of Ahimelech. Ahimelech was the priest uh, at Nob, and being the priest at Nob, he had helped David and his fighting men, um, who he believed was on a mission for King Saul, because that's the way it was described to him. And he gave them food to eat, and he gave them the sword of Goliath that would end up costing the lives of the priests who were there, 85 of them in all, that Daog himself Uh, would be the one responsible for killing them. And so this is what David wrote in the midst of this running time. Verse 1. Why do you boast of evil, you mighty man? Why do you boast all day long, you who are a disgrace in the eyes of God? Your tongue plots destruction. It's like a sharpened razor, you who practice deceit. You love evil rather than good, falsehood rather than speaking the truth, Selah. You love every harmful word, O you deceitful tongue. Now, I want to contextualize this a little bit because I think that these general complaints that we see in the Psalms, though David is talking specifically about situations he's going through, that these general psalms are sung for the congregation, therefore everybody through these times, right? So there's something that you and I can learn from these verses here that apply to us. And I think that one of the things that we look at here is that we see deceitfulness, a man of evil who doesn't love the truth but loves falsehood and builds his life on that exposing of falsehood for his own personal gain. 
we live in an information age, right? Like nobody's business. We have seen huge uh, explosions of knowledge of information over history and time. With the invention of writing, the printing, and then you have the printing press, which just caused learning to go crazy. And now we have the internet, which has just made all of that other just seem so small. We have so much information in our hands. And you would think with so much information, it would be easier to discern truth. But I would, I would talk with you guys and say, I think it's muddled the waters quite a bit more. Wouldn't you agree? Let me ask a question, and I'm being serious, and, and just be honest, there's no judgment here. How many of you trust the news media? I don't care what media it is. How many of you trust the news media? Raise your hand. Very few. Why is that? Shouldn't we have more information now than ever before? Aren't we privy to more events and more things that are happening in our world than ever before? And yet, what comes down to it is none of us believe, if we don't have our hands up, the ones who did not raise their hands concerning the news media do not believe to a real extent that what we're seeing is truth. Would you guys agree with that? That many of these narratives that are, have been built up and, and promoted as news, as factual basis things, come with some sort of skew that obscures rather than clarifies. It's almost like we're hearing Pilate in our culture all over again as Jesus proclaims to him, everybody who loves the truth follows me, and he turns around and says, what is truth, and walks out the door without hearing an answer. That's the world we live in right now. Don't we answer, ask that same question, what is truth? Because there's so much evil going on in the world that we see, and yet none of us trust the sources from which these information outlets give us. We think they're skewed in some way or another. Because as a culture, we have moved to a postmodern mindset, which is a post-truth mindset, that truth can be known. And therefore, what that leads us to is if truth can't be known, then truth is whatever you make it to be. And our news has followed suit with that. We go back and look at news broadcasts of 50 years ago. It was just, these are the facts, this is what's happening, you make up your own mind. But now the news broadcasts seem to try to make up your mind for you before they start giving you the information of the stories that they're trying to share making them less trustworthy in all of our eyes because none of us trust, or very few of us do. When you and I lose the foundation of truth, all you're left with is yourself in trying to figure out what truth is. And our culture, would you say our culture is getting better or getting worse? How many of you think it's getting worse? Raise your hand. This is what happens when we jettison truth. 
This is what happens when we no longer recognize what truth is and have to try and discern from ourselves. And the only resource we're given to discern according to our culture is our feelings. And our feelings, as all of us just testified, tend to lead us to very evil places. It's exactly what Sam was talking about during his communion time. You know, the things I want to do, I know I want to do the right thing, but the things I don't want to do, that's what I end up doing. And that's what we're seeing our culture doing over and over and over again. Because if you ask them that that's the end result that they actually want, it really isn't. But they can't feel any other way in which to make those things happen. Whether we're talking about what they feel like is injustice or racism or gender. Let's just name them all off. All of these things have been divorced from an objective standard of truth and left for the individual and the society to try and create an answer for it. Not doing so good, are we? Same thing happening here. You guys seen Twitter? You love every harmful word, oh you deceitful tongue. Dang, that's Twitter. That was preaching right there. You guys ever scroll the comments just to see the chaos ensue? I admit I have that guilty pleasure. Nobody else is brave enough to raise your hands, you liars. So, we've done it. We've scrolled through there. We've watched the chaos ensue, but I, I don't participate because I don't know that I'm any better for it, right? But where's our hope? Where's, where's David's hope? As he speaks of these people who love deceit and falsehood in order to get ahead. Verse 5. Surely God will bring you down to everlasting ruin. He will snatch you up and tear you from your tent. He will uproot you from the land of the living, Selah. The righteous will see and fear, and they will laugh at him, saying, Here now is the man who did not make God his stronghold, but trusted in his great wealth, and grew strong by destroying others. I want to tell you that right now, the entire social justice movement is based upon verse 7. Here now is a man who did not make God his stronghold, but trusted in his great wealth and grew strong by destroying others. The entire social justice movement exists to bring equity by tearing down other people instead of building people up. By looking at other people as oppressors who need the field evenly played out. And so we see riots when they don't get the verdict that they want. We see this proclamation of injustice because they weren't born in a great circumstance. And how are you and I, as believers in Christ, supposed to answer these charges? Because it's something that you and I should have to do, right? 
We should know how to do that. We know it's wrong, but why is it wrong? Well, number one, we have to address something, that those who hold to a social justice mentality do not have God as their fixed point of reference. They see inequities and they say it's just wrong. Everybody should be equal. Let's just make everybody equal. Let's just force everybody to be equal. Have we ever asked the question whether or not that type of economic, social, societal justice and that type of equity was ever promised by God in the Word of God? Anybody? You and I just assuming it's right. There's no place I see in the Word of God that guarantees that your status in any way, shape, or form is guaranteed to be rich, poor, or otherwise. Nothing. As a matter of fact, Acts chapter 17 talks about it this way, that God who created the world and everything that's in it and created from one man all nations knew exactly when, where, and the circumstances for which you were born. And why did he do this? So that you might reach out for him and grope for him and find him though he's not far from each one of us. That's Acts 17, verses 24 through 27. See, the purpose you're born in your family, in your circumstances, in God's economy, is so that you'll reach out and you'll find him. That's God's greatest desire. That's why Jesus was sent to die on the cross for you and me, that you might find him and forgiveness in him and be able to live with him forever in heaven. This world is not our home. And for you and me to think that equity, not justice, justice we should be seeking. Seek justice, love mercy, walk humbly with your God. But equity is not justice. As a matter of fact, equity judges God. It says he doesn't know what he's doing when he puts you in your family, your circumstances, when we see in the word of God that he puts you exactly in the family that you are in, in the place in which you live, for the sole purpose that you might reach out, grope for him, and find him. And you thinking that you're smarter than God, that if you were born in a different circumstance, you would have reached out for him, I think flies in the face of the God who knows you better than you know yourself. And so when we look at the scriptures who are here and the struggles that we're seeing in our country right now, let's just be honest. Our country has great wealth. And I've said it from the pulpit many times before, and I'll say it again. The Bible talks about that we should have godliness with contentment. As long as we have food in our bellies and clothes on our back, as it says in 1 Timothy chapter 6, as it talks about, as it alludes to in James chapter 2, these are the two things that are necessities. Food and clothing. Throughout the scripture, that's what you see. If I have food, if I have clothing, I'll be content. And our world right now, and ourselves, if we're honest about it, we complain even though we have so much. We have a roof over our head. We have cars that we're driving. We have clothes on our back. We have food in our belly. 
By the grace of God, we have all of these things. And yet, because we don't have what somebody else has who might have a nicer house or two cars instead of one or a better job or a savings account or whatever, I don't see that in the Word of God, but you and I are just clamoring for it. Can I tell you what that is? It's covetousness and it's sin and it needs to be repented of by every single person who desires those things at the expense of somebody else. Just because they have more than you. Because God wants that person to come to know Jesus too. And the person who has less than you, God wants that person to come to know Jesus too. But we live in a society right now that doesn't have that understanding and is trying to teach that framework to you and I through television shows, through the education system right now. Let me tell you, this whole idea of the social justice movement and critical race theory and critical theory in general is not gospel-driven, but it is a worldview that is being siphoned to our children. It is being siphoned to you as adults. In every program that you watch, you're taking that in. But if you're not comparing it to the Word of God, you don't see where it falls short of God's standard of what He says, of what He says is just and right and true and why we are born in the situation that we're born in. We're born to know Jesus. That's why you live in the place that you live. That's why you're in this church here today. That's why you're in the family that you're in. No matter how great it is or messed up it is, believe it or not, God knows you so well that he wants you drawn to him and he's using every circumstance to make it easier for you. That's the answer for what happens to all the people in all the other places in the world. God has them exactly where he wants them because that's where they will most likely reach for him and grope for him and find him if given the opportunity. But you and I have to have that foundation in order to be secure amidst a culture that is preaching a different gospel and trying to get you guys to trust something that's not based in the truth. Because in the end, those things come to ruin. That's what these middle verses are all about. Surely God's going to bring you to everlasting ruin. No matter how successful you might be in this life, in the end, you're going to be judged by God and found wanting because your hope is not in Him. And for you and me, it's the same thing. Our hope has to be 100% about God and what His Word says and what Jesus has come to do for you and me. And everything has to be based upon that. If it's not, we're on shifting sand that changes with our circumstance and our feelings instead of based on the reality of what Jesus did on the cross and His promise for you and me. And nobody will ever be able to revoke that. That's a confidence that I can have whether I'm living in a house or living in a car. It's the confidence I can have whether I have $10,000 in my savings account or whether I have zero and I'm week to week on my paychecks. God has provided me and I don't have to be jealous of somebody else because my hope is not them, my hope is God. 
My hope is Christ. I don't have to be jealous because some of you live in a richer lifestyle than I live in myself. I can praise God that God has provided for you, and I can praise God that God has provided for me and not feel a pang of jealousy. Because our culture wants you to be jealous and to hate those who have more or different things than you do. And God just wants you in your situation so that you'll grope for him and that you might find him in Jesus Christ. That's a big difference, isn't it? That's a big difference. This is where David's at. So in his circumstance, he's composing a song, praising God, talking about his circumstance. But he says, these people, they don't have their foundation in you. They're going to come to ruin because they're trusting in their wealth or they're trusting in their love for wealth to provide for all of these things. But you, O oh God, the righteous are going to look at them and they're going to see and they're going to laugh and they're going to realize they have no foundation. And this is a man on the run. Think about that for a moment. If we're looking circumstances, David has a lot to complain about, but he's not. He's saying, look, but I know my foundation is secure. No matter what happens to me, I have God. Which leads him, just quite naturally, to verses 8 and 9. But I'm like an olive tree, flourishing in the house of God. I trust in God's unfailing love forever and ever. I will praise you forever for what you have done. In your name, I will hope, for your name is good. I will praise you in the presence of your saints. Man, it's a man who loves God with all of his heart, mind, soul, and strength. This is why David, despite all of his flaws, is called a man after God's own heart. Because he recognized where his foundation was. He understood that it was different than those who were chasing him down and society's circumstance at the time. And he put his faith and hope in God, which leads him to praise. And he says, I flourish in the house of God. I flourish when I know you. I'm going to praise you. You've heard me and Mark talk about it so many times. There is no replacement for the believer in Christ than the knowledge of God through Jesus and the word of God that he's given. No replacement. Zero. Our joy, our everything ought to be in the knowledge of who God is, what he's done for us in Jesus, and how he's revealed himself through his word. We should know it backwards and forwards. It should be our joy because if that's our foundation, then the world can throw whatever it wants to at us. Our foundation will be secure. As I've shared with you many times, Christians in churches right now, our biblical worldview is 2% within the churches. You know what that tells me? Our foundation's not in God. Our foundation's not in the love of God. We've loved other things and we've adopted those things from the world rather than falling in love with God. Look at the things that he wants to do. I want to be in the house of God. I want to proclaim your name. I want to praise your words. I want to let everybody know how awesome you are because my foundation is in Christ and in Christ alone. And for everybody who calls himself a Christian, that should be.
be our desire. First and foremost, you want security among uncertain times? You want to know how to stand up against the world around you that seems like they don't understand truth and they're going crazy right now. Stop listening so much to them and start listening a lot more to the voice of God through the scriptures, through the person of Jesus Christ for your foundation of faith. That's the only thing that will make you stable as this world gets crazier and crazier. You want to see revival? It'll happen when God's people have this type of heart for God themselves. That your foundation, everything about you is about Jesus. Nothing else matters. I will say one thing. It's been a year and a half and we're seeing many of you guys coming back, which is so awesome. So awesome. It's been challenging, though. It's challenged me. And I know it's challenged you guys. Because I think one of the things that it has done that we can learn from is it's stripped away a lot of these gods that we've worshipped at the altar at and we didn't even know it. Things that we thought that we needed in order to be fulfilled, healthy. I wish I could go out and watch a ball game. I wish I could too. But do I need it? If I never have another ball game again, Jesus is still enough. Do I really believe that? Then I got to live it. Right? None of these stores ever open back up again to the way that we want them to or gather together or have the things that we have enjoyed doing in the past. Is Jesus enough? Or is that the bane of our existence? See, that really brings into focus you and I where our joy is found. Is it in Christ and Christ alone? And I think that this time has honed us. I think it's pruned us some. I think that there are some that have struggled with this question mightily as to whether or not Jesus has been enough. There's some of us who are here who have struggled with that. And my prayer for you guys is stay strong in him. In the end, it's the only foundation that's secure. The only one for you or for me. That's our proclamation. So there's a really cool song I want to end with today. I think it's appropriate for where we're at and and I think for what we want. And just like what Sam talked about earlier, I think we all feel that, that stumbling of sin in our lives where we end up doing what we want to do rather than what God wants us to do. Even though we want to do what God wants us to do, we, we just find that, man, sin is right there messing with us. You guys get that? So this song is uh, it's, uh, by Andrew Peterson. It's called The Chasing Song, and it's focused very much on the life of David, and um, as well as a lot of other circumstances that you guys will recognize within, within the Bible here. And my prayer for you, my prayer for me, is that that our heart will be much like this song and much like David's heart, that we would want to be men and women after God's own heart, pursuing him wholeheartedly and realizing that's the only way we're going to be sure, that's the only way we're really going to get ahead is by focusing first and foremost on Christ.
So I'm going to leave you with this.